This sort of job would probably take a year or so in the planning phase and then you would spend six months potentially doing all of the sort of the upfront work and then you would bring it to site and then it would take potentially three years to do a job of this magnitude under normal circumstances. But these were not normal circumstances and this man had been chosen to do the impossible. I got an email, I think it came through, it was late on Saturday or early on Sunday morning. His name is Dan Harmer, project manager at InterServe Construction, and as the email landed in his inbox in late March, he was preparing to build a school in Hereford, but the email changed everything. At that time, I was quite comfortably sat at home working on this project, like I said, that I'm about to do in Hereford and working out the finer details and the points of that. The message didn't give much away, and uh, it was basically clear desk. Yeah, you got Monday to wrap all up all your loose ends and you need to be here. I wasn't told what the, what the project was. It was just that you and three others need to be here Tuesday morning. I knew it was important because uh, the way that, um, that it was pitched over to us that, you know, you need to be here Tuesday, seven o'clock, big meeting. So um, yeah, that was, that was how I was told. InterServe had been selected to convert the NEC Exhibition Centre in Birmingham into the NHS Nightingale. The Nightingales are a series of seven temporary critical care hospitals spaced throughout England ordered by government to be built in March, just as the number of coronavirus cases was spiralling. The hospitals were set up as quickly as was humanly possible. As the virus spread, it looked increasingly like the NHS would be overwhelmed and the country was at risk of an unprecedented cost in lives. My bosses had been working on it. I think they got the call on Friday. It was either late Friday or early Saturday. So they'd been working on it all weekend at the NEC with the NHS, the military, because they were heavily involved at the start. And the, the trust, they were sort of ironing out what they wanted because I believe the button had been pushed at a, a sort of government level that this was going to happen. Um, so we were engaged then. We were, we were mobilised. We, we were ready to go. Ready to build phase one with 800 fully equipped beds in just nine days, followed by work to equip the site up to a total of 4,000 beds. An effort that would see 400 contractors, supported by 60 Gurkhas, work over 40,000 hours to complete it in just nine days. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we worked in partnership with software company Autodesk to look at the construction of NHS Nightingale Birmingham. And how the immense human effort and endurance of the team had to be supported by technology to keep to what looked like an impossible timeline. All of which led to what had to be one of the most painless site handovers in history. Because at the end of the day, you know, we, we've managed to move heaven and earth, as it were, in, in nine days to get them those beds. They were, they were very eager to take them. To really get the scale of this achievement, we need to understand the challenges facing the construction industry. It is often criticised for low productivity compared to other sectors. But unlike, for example, the automotive industry, construction does not get to perfect its processes in a controlled environment creating the same component thousands of times. Every job site is different. Sometimes it's unfair to say that construction is the laggard of the process. I think it's just the fact that the way that project teams have operated, 
getting technology to site can sometimes actually be a challenge. Access to technology, access to the internet, can, you know, these are they sound like very simple things, but it, it can really stifle adoption of technology at that phase. This is Matt Keane. He is the construction industry strategist at Autodesk, the software company of AutoCAD fame, and a suite of other programs. He is a 20-year hand in the construction industry and something of an evangelist for companies going digital. And again, it's not entirely fair to say that construction hasn't embraced the digital. It's just that so far, it has generally only penetrated as far as the design phase of a project. Once construction begins and the plan meets reality, we see the return of printers, papers and signatures. So you've, you've seen more of it in the design phase because these guys have access to the infrastructure that maybe the projects don't. So I think that that was traditionally part of the challenge. I think as we've gone more mobile and especially more mobile first and everybody has access to a smartphone or a, you know, a tablet these days, it means that we're starting to see more technology adopted at the coalface, at the construction site, at the, at the point where projects are actually executed. Keeping up with quick-fire design changes on sophisticated modern projects, especially when they come at the incredible speed and urgency that was faced by the Nightingale, means that printing 2D drawings off is too slow to be realistic. Then there is also the social distancing factor that could become the new normal. This tragedy may be the perfect time to look at changing some of our working processes. The pandemic has been a very, very serious, you know, for some families, unfortunately, extremely serious. But out of that, I think it was Andrew Wilson Home who once said, you know, never waste a good crisis. It probably came from Plato, actually, before him. Um, but he certainly wrote the report, Never Waste a Good Crisis. And I think the Wollstoneholm Report of 2009. And I think that this is an opportunity for the industry to put themselves in a position whereby they they really start to look at the processes that they have and how can they transform those and move quickly. And a lot of the architectural engineering and construction industry has had to pivot very quickly to using digital in order to you know, help with work from home, to help with how is it that we can work on sites and not spend as much time on site that we might have used to. So how can we conduct inspections once and make sure that we capture as much information as possible and make sure there's one version of the truth? This is also the story of a team that had to work around the clock, that had to embrace new practices to meet a deadline that could have meant life or death for thousands. When I turned up there, it was, it was big, it was empty, it was all open. This was Dan Harmer again, arriving on site in Birmingham in late March. And uh, I think I, I turned up on the 31st of March and uh, conversations have been happening the weekend prior to that. And um, the, the, the plan was to convert that open space into a functioning uh, originally, I think it was um, sort of talked about as being a field hospital. However, the University Hospital Birmingham, so that's the trust that we were working for and we were sort of operating on behalf of, wanted it to be more of a clinical facility. So at that point, the Excel, everybody was quite aware of the Excel in London and, and how that was going. The Excel in London is the site of the first Nightingale Hospital. But whereas that is more of a field hospital, Birmingham was intended to be more sophisticated, a full clinical facility. 
This means that rather than just canisters of gas at each bed, there was a sophisticated network of medical grade piping that needed to be installed in recesses under the floor. What set the NEC apart from the XL was the medical gas. Um, rather than having bottles and rather than it all having to be mobile, having that um, piped medical grade uh, gas to be sent, sent round the, the different what became the wards or the halls is what really made the difference having that medical gas pumped to the bed heads because at the time uh, ventilators were the big worry I think and, um, and making sure that they could get as much of that oxygen to the, to the bed heads was going to make such a difference. And this was the first step on the construction critical path with the team working on installing kilometres of copper pipe. So as soon as um, the medical gas started, as soon as the floor laying started, as soon as the, uh, the cabling went down, we would just went for it. Uh, originally, we, we very quickly uh, established our team. I think there was, the, like I said, the four of us to start with. Uh, on day two, I, I had 15 people um, and they were all sort of tasked to do different things. And we, uh, we did a split shift um, and we had a couple of guys that sort of managed the what became the, the afternoon and evening shift and then uh, sort of going into the early hours of the morning. The team grew and grew, and so did the enthusiasm. There was always more work, but there were always volunteers willing to offer more hours. It was a, a big effort and, and all of our team, and not just the InterSurf guys and the IES guys, but every subcontract, everybody that set foot on, on that site, they just wanted to do the right thing and, and help. And, and many of them, you know, ought, yeah, come and do a shift, do as long as you can. I, I remember speaking to floor layers, you know, if, if you can do 10 hours, that'd be brilliant. If you could do 11, even better. If you could do 12, that'd be amazing. And, and you know, these guys are, do, are not sort of just pushing pens. They are working hard graft and they were laying out rolls and rolls of vinyl and they were doing it for 12 hour shifts. Didn't bat an eyelid. One gang came up from Essex. So they were driving up from Essex and I, th I think they, they left. They did a 12 hour shift, drove home slept for about eight hours, got straight back in the van and then drove up to do the following night shift. And that was just how it was. Um, you know, it, 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 was, it was amazing. It was really, really brilliant to, that everybody was just pulling together. A total of 400 contractors supported by 60 Gurkhas worked 40,000 hours to complete phase one. They laid over 100 kilometers of electric cable, nearly 20 kilometers of copper piping and enough vinyl flooring to cover 12 football pitches. The Gurkhas are a traditional unit in the British Army recruited from Nepal. They have a reputation for strength, bravery, and are famous for wielding a fearsome forward-curving knife called a kukri. They can be on site for 10, 12 hours if you want them, and they will do whatever you need them to do. So if that can help, then great. And, and they did, and they're brilliant. Lift and shifters. If you ever want lift and shifters, Gurkhas are the people you need because they just, Never have I seen such a military operation moving copper piping around uh, a site like the NEC. On top of all this, everyone had to know the job of the people around them, the people further up the chain and the people they relied on down the chain. COVID-19 was spreading and the team had to be prepared for it to make it to the site and cut its way through the workforce. This was to put redundancy into the site team. People needed to be ready to perform multiple roles if necessary. We needed to stagger the different teams because we had different shifts. We needed to put them into different zones and we didn't want to obviously sort of overburden any one particular subcontractor. But going back to social distancing and, and the, the situation we had at the time, we also had to be COVID safe. 
So there was certainly at the time, there was a real possibility that people could have become ill because we didn't quite know how it was going to look and how it was going to take at that time. I was the, the number two on the project. Um, so I was project manager, but I was underneath the project director because if he became ill, I would need to step up and go in and sort of run the higher level meetings that, that uh, Vince did. However, if I was ill, he would need to step down and sort of facilitate that. And then my number two, so my backup would have to step up one. So everybody needed to know the job of or the position of the person above them and the person below them. So if anything happened, that they could step into that, uh, into that role. This workload was only one part. Although he says InterServe is quite advanced when it comes to digital tools, admitted technophobe Dan knew that the project was being put together so quickly and needed such rapid changes to the design, tried and tested analog methods of design updates would not be able to keep up. I think generally speaking, like I said, we, we are quite 21st century. Myself, I'm not. I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to technology. Um, I, I always have been uh, stuck in the dark ages. But there are advantages to technology and it, and it can really assist and, and aid. And like I said, we, we had this um, drawing system which we were able to share on, on a larger project. Um, so, for example, one that I did in Birmingham prior to this, we had this file sharing system that allowed us to share the drawings with the subcontractors and we could keep up to date. We can use cleanup notices, you can use it for health and safety briefs, you could use it for um, permit issuing, etc. But the breakneck pace and urgency of the work at the NEC took this need to another level. And although they started out working more traditionally, working from printed drawings, this just wasn't going to work. Like I say, you, we could be drawing it at head office just up the road and then we would need those drawings. So in the first few days, we were getting in cars and driving them around. And it was almost as soon as you printed a set off, driven it around, got it through the gate and all the security passes, got it to the team that needed it, driven back. There was another revision because they'd moved something. Right, okay, print it all off again and send it back round. He needed help. He turned to Michelle Jeffs. She is the Autodesk account manager working with Interserve. Yes, so we had a team call and we were discussing the press release where they'd been awarded Nightingale Hospital. And obviously it was the just the early days of the pandemic. So we were looking at how we can assist companies during this period. They read about some of the problems and wanted to propose their Plan Grid software, which is a kind of group collaboration platform that allows updates and information to be shared around the entire site team. And I then reached out to Dan. He did say to me, he said, like, I'm a technophobe. I don't like technology. So I need something, Michelle, that's going to be really easy. And my guys are just going to pick up and run with because we need something quick. Plan Grid is part of the Autodesk Construction Cloud, which is what InterServe used for the project, which provides a number of software packages to help across the construction cycle. Listeners in construction are probably familiar with Assemble, BIM 360 and Building Connected. But for this particular project, Dan was most interested in Plan Grid. Rather than ordinarily, you know, you might get a revision once a week or something like that through a project for, for a particular element as you sort of take a look in, in that in some detail. However, in this particular one, we were revising the drawings on an hourly basis. 
Um, we were putting rooms in, then we were moving rooms, then we were changing how the nurse bay and the nurse station might look so that they could have full and good view of all of the patients. And then I believe they changed in some cases how the nurse station would sit within the bed. So we were mo might have moved it from one to another. And so one of the complications, or not a complication, one of the things that we had to manage was making sure that we kept up to speed with the changes that were being made in the office to make sure that we weren't building anything twice. Although Dan likes to say he's a dinosaur, he has had some experience with construction process management software before. So he knew what to expect and was optimistic. But not everyone on the site was. There's a couple of guys who hadn't used it in the past and they were like, oh, yeah, that's never going to work. And my colleague Dave, I remember, he, he said, no, there's no way that that's going to work. He said, you know, drawings are the way forward. And, and yet he, uh, he absolutely embraced it and he was marking up drawings left, right and centre, sort of really showing me quite excitedly how, uh, how this system was working and um, where we've moved these to. And you could mark up the shift change for the following night and you could do a job sheet of these. Are, this is what we're going to do today. So you could do all of that on the on this system. So yeah, the, the technology, it, it really was good. It was very basic, very simple. So we just had radios and we had mobile phones and we had apps. If, if you can operate something on an app, generally speaking, you can, you can do it quite well. Dan takes a moment to emphasize the importance of easy to use tech on the construction site, which he prizes over many other features. There's no point reinventing the wheel. I tend to find if, if, if it's simple and it's easy, then and you can generally speaking if you can put it on an app so it doesn't matter what phone you've got or what tablet you've got if you can then add it as an app most people can sort of get to grips with it generally speaking they'll all have their nuances and their sort of niche bits that they that separates them apart but generally speaking if if the apps are, are very similar and that's one of the things because we build stuff we're, we're builders we're not necessarily it specialists so it, it does help if things are simple um we then obviously in many cases, we need to share it with the wider workforce and they need to be able to access it as well. Technology can also help sites stick to social distancing regulations. With digitalised work processes, personnel can be removed from site and still update drawings and interact from a remote location. Dan and his team also experimented with proximity sensors to help enforce social distancing. There is a system that exists to keep ground workers safe from machine buckets. So, you know, if you get hit from a machine bucket, it's going to do a lot of damage. So there is a technology that exists that is a proximity sensor, basically. So it just makes sure that you know that you are a certain distance away from the edge of the bucket. There's a device on the bucket itself and there's a device on the individual. This is a radio frequency identification system, or RFID. In some existing uses, in some of the more difficult environments, such as tunnelling, it can get quite sophisticated, with the ability to set different distance tolerances for workers of differing competencies. For example, a machine driver could get closer than a labourer. And we asked the question of this supplier, could there be a system that we could do that keeps people two metres away? And they very quickly, I think it was over the first weekend, they they developed something and they, they came up with this backpack device. So... Like I said, they, they turned that around really quickly. The downside of it, and again, it was a, it was very infant. They were just sort of throwing something together to see if it would work. And we, we had a trial on site, but it required quite a lot of battery power. And one of the things that we noticed is working 12, 18, in many cases, 20 hours, uh, individuals doing 20 hour shifts, that would have been a heavy weight to have to carry on the back. But in truth, 
This wasn't really a problem Dan had while working at the NEC, and not just because of its cavernous halls. The NEC is so big, and the halls at the NEC are so big, and we were working above ground, we were working underground. So we managed to sort of disperse quite a lot of the people. And yeah, as you alluded to before, I've got a big voice and uh, <laughs> if you shout at people and you do it in a calm and polite manner and you explain to them why we're all here and the importance of this facility and um, just remind them of uh, you know the potentials of the virus and the fact that we don't want them or any of their loved ones to be using this facility. So stay apart. All of a sudden, people are taking a step that step away from from each other. So um, yeah, they uh, they they sort of listened, and uh, I, that constant reminder happened. And I did that generally speak about once a day. Um, but we had a team of ten dedicated health and safety people, and it was their sole job to go around and just remind people of social distancing. And in construction, it's not that uncommon for people to know that two meters is the height of a door. But if even that fails. I said to one of my colleagues, if you just cut a stick, a little thin baton, two meters long, and just have it in your hand. And if anyone sort of looks, yeah, you know, I am two meters apart, just hold the stick up in front of you. And, and then it's that visual understanding. And I am sure the baton was a purely visual aid and it was never necessary to reinforce this with a physical demonstration. Either way, work was completed without an outbreak among the site team. Nine days later, on the 10th of April, phase one was done. And it really was done. It was essential to get everything right and maximize the number of beds, optimize the setup, because once it was the end, once they had left the hall, they'd left the hall for good. Work on phase two would be carried out in such a way that would allow ambulances to begin to deliver patients to phase one. Countless revisions had been done, the largest being the provision of a 150 bed ICU because the progression of the disease suggested that would be needed. But then, due to a countrywide lockdown and the heroic efforts of the NHS, the explosion of cases never came. Then we had the second phase, we had a bit more time because it wasn't like that they'd had loads and loads of people coming um, and, and having to use the facility. Brilliantly, University Hospital Birmingham, the QE and all of our surrounding uh, hospitals to the best of my knowledge and, and what I was told in um, various briefings is they were coping, they were managing the situation and at the time the thought was that they would keep as many people on site at the hospital as they could and that gave us that little bit of extra time so whilst we were ready and we'd achieved it and the doctors and nurses were going through all of their familiarisation, they were getting everything stocked and ready, they could have used it but they didn't need to and that gave us the ability to carry on working and, and sort of completing the next phase. So far, mercifully, the NHS Nightingale Birmingham has not been needed and phase three has been put on hold. To the best of my knowledge, that, that's managed to be parked because they've, they've controlled, at least in this first wave, they've managed to control the situation. So the NHS and, and the UHB decided that they would pause and if ever they needed to revisit it, they could. And I, I'm not sure exactly what's happened with that now because you know uh, that my, my bit's done and um, phase one and two is, is there ready and waiting if it's required. The Nightingale is an extreme case study. It's an immense achievement that can be looked back on with pride by the whole industry as a demonstration of what it can deliver in a time of need. 
But although without embracing new technology to manage the site and the supply chain, it could not have happened. Not every project had this level of sheer human will driving it forward. So they need to use all the tools at their disposal. So if you think about typical capabilities for a construction company, they're around things like document management, estimating, quality management. And so for each of those, we try to define what we think that journey looks like. And we've come up with a five-step model that we can walk customers through from that initial move to digital, you know, to how is it that you scale that approach across the organization? How do you leverage the data out of it to how do you really push the boundaries so that you can do things like change revenue streams and, and stretch business models to, to do something different and differentiate yourself in the marketplace? What this project has demonstrated is how quickly new technology can be adopted when the determination is there. Everyone quickly saw the benefits of digital transformation. And with this door to new technology now wide open, there is so much more on the horizon. We're excited by AI and machine learning, there's no doubt about that, and we're investing heavily in this. There's two key areas that I think that we've been investing in it. One is around the concept of generative design, which is really defining what the constraints of a design are and then allowing you know, computational power to, to work out all of the variables. And what you tend to get is something that, you know, we were working with General Motors on something as simple as a seatbelt bracket design and how we took a component which had nine parts uh, and actually turned that into a single 3D printed part which, you know, weighed 30% less and, and used about 50% less materials. It looked extremely organic in its design, but it's something that a human couldn't have designed. For projects, this could help architects and engineers to create a huge number of versions of a design really quickly, giving clients more choice and certainty in the early stages of projects. So generative design is, is really exciting and we're starting to see that come into the architectural engineering and construction space more and more. The other area that we've been looking at is how do we take large sets of data and then use AI and machine learning to really understand what the patterns are within that and then use that to move from, I suppose, a reactive mode to a predictive mode, which is, so if you look at the example we've got with BAM Island, where they've been using what we call construction IQ, they were able to reduce quality and safety issues by about 25% on their projects. And what the Construction IQ module did was it took all the historical points of data from uh, numerous projects and then effectively looked at prioritising them in terms of importance or risk. And what that allowed BAM Island to do was to effectively prioritise which issues they went to deal with first based on the, the, the their exposure to risk. So it looks at things like safety risks, it looks like um, water penetration risks. So, uh, and what the team have done, which is you know a fantastic piece of work on our side, is as they've taken years of data going back and then looking for those patterns and data, getting the algorithms to search through them and then starting to look for the same patterns again in the forward-looking data that we're getting from customers now. So we're quite excited about the direction of travel with AI and machine learning. The Nightingale Hospital shows us just what can be achieved when human effort is combined with new technology. Before COVID-19 changed all of our lives, 
Dan and the other heroes that will deliver our critical infrastructure would have taken three years to build a hospital. This crisis focused construction in a way that has never been seen before. The challenge now is not to waste the know-how and the new technology that this situation gave birth to. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Produced and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rhea Owen. Edited by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervisor is John Young. And our own two-metre baton is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Autodesk Construction Solutions, InterServe Construction, and of course, the National Health Service. <laughs> <laughs>